Brown, working with the Australian Hypnoculture Podcast. How you going, Luke? Good, mate. How are you? Good. I didn't stuff that one up again. No, that's good. That's good. <laughs> that's it. Oh, well, let's get straight into it, eh? Yeah, do you want to introduce the guest tonight? Yeah. Tonight we've got on Nicholas Youngman. How you going, buddy? How's it going, guys? Very good, mate. Very good. Thanks for coming good, on. Yeah. Yeah, no, king to bear. Yeah. No, it's exciting to, to have a fresh face on the show and... Um, you know, not just us two waffling on again, mate. Yeah, have a good chat to someone about anything and everything reptiles. So. <laughs> yeah. Got a bit bored of staring at Luke's face all the time. <laughs> Mine's not much better. It's better than my shiny head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, at least you got yeah. the lights on there tonight, Jason. Last night you yeah, were sitting in the, well, the last time you were sitting in the dark and all I could see was your teeth. Yeah, I know, glowing teeth. Well, at least you know my teeth are clean, so... <laughs> Anyway, anyway, well, why don't you give the listeners a bit of a rundown yourself? What got you into basically reptiles in general? I wish I could say it was uh, some big different thing, but no, the usual. I just loved them as a kid. I was really into dinosaurs to begin with. No, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't think there were many jobs in that though, so <laughs> thought I'd be a vet. Didn't really like that either. Um, decided to go into research, and then I've been doing uh, snake venom research for the past six years or so. Yep. I about that. Um, started keeping reptiles only when I was like 19 or so. So, yeah, about six, seven years ago, too. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, research sort of is finishing up at the moment for me, moving on to a new stage in life and all that. So, I've moved up to Townsville, working as the reptile keeper at Billabong Sanctuary. And that's oh, nice. uh, keeping me on my toes, keeping me busy. Uh, Upgraded from uh, small skinks to five-meter crocs. <laughs> big, yeah. big skinks to bite. <laughs> yeah, you know. They're still lizards. They do the same yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. they got four like, legs and a tail. Just swamp geckos, mate. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, yeah, no, I still love my research, though. I'm still, like, collaborating on stuff and doing things. And But um, it's, it's good to be hands-on every day with animals again. What drew you into researching, like, snake venom in particular, or, or was it like you kind of just had to try to pick a bit of a line and and go with it? And stick to it kind of thing. Yeah, it was kind of that. I, I did a field trip to Fraser Island in my uh, second year of uni. Yeah. And one of the lecturers was Brian Fry, the venom doc. So I was chatting to him, chatting away, talking about Komodo dragons a lot. I thought, oh, yeah, this guy sounds like he'd be fun to work for. So uh did an undergrad project and volunteered in his lab a bit and then ended up doing another project and another project and ended up being a research technician for a bit with him and then did a PhD with him and just sort of never left really. Um, so, yeah, wound up there for yeah, about six years in the same lab. Wow. Well, what Pretty was, good bloke to learn from. Yeah, I was going to say, like, sure. what was that like to, to hang around and learn from him? Because, I mean, I've read his book and, and, you know, he seems like a pretty interesting character and obviously he's, he's deep in it, so. Oh, definitely, yeah. He knows his, he knows his venomous animals and he's he's been there, done that, done some cool stuff for sure, no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was definitely good fun and I got to work, like, I mean, I got to work on some of the rarest snake venoms you can imagine. Um mm. And yeah, that was definitely cool. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so um, I mean, Jason and I both aren't very, uh, you know, venomous guys in that sort of sense. Like, you know, so that must have been um, 
do you have any sort of like hairy moments or anything like that when you were doing a bit of this? No, so that's the funny thing with the research side of it. Um, there was never not once in six years a venomous snake in the lab. Um, okay. We didn't keep them. We didn't keep them or nothing. So, to be honest, the venom—it's all powder. It's in a freezer. Yeah. Um, yeah. We get it sent to us. I did venomous snake handling um, in other circumstances, sort of, but um, not really venom collecting. Yeah. Or any of that. So. Yeah, you'd have to be an idiot to spill it on you, inject it into yourself, and I'm not that dumb. So. <laughs> Never did none of that. Uh, oh, did you um, did you get any, like, allergic reaction to working with the venom? Because you kind of hear that quite a bit, the people that work with venom for such a long time, they kind of develop those allergic reactions to the venom, especially the powdered stuff. Yeah, I'm waiting to see if that uh, pops up in the future for me. Hopefully yeah. not. Um, Fingers crossed. I would always, when I was working with, like, big quantities of powder, I'd work in fumids and stuff to sort of mitigate that risk, sort of try and reduce how much I was getting exposed to it in the air. But definitely, like, um, a lot of the people who have worked in venom research for decades, and especially when they did it, you know, ages ago when there was less sort of safety precautions, they're all allergic. They'd all be dead in two minutes if they get bit by the majority of things, even like a brown tree snake. Um, but hopefully for me, fingers crossed that won't be a problem. Um, but, uh, yeah, like some of the powders I'd work with, some of the African vipers, you'd just have jars, huge jars full of powder. Um, you're working with pretty big quantities of venom sometimes. Can can you just kind of like run our listeners through how, you know, the venom kind of gets turned from like obviously the venom that comes out of the fangs of the snakes and turned into like the powdered form? Is it just like a freezing process that does that or? Yeah, so you spin it down, you can um, centrifuge it too and separate some of the gunk from the venom. Um, And then, yeah, you freeze freeze dry it down into the powder and then you can bring that back up in water when you want to use it. So when it's actually in its powder form, you can store it for years and years and years. yeah, many, many years just in a freezer, minus 20, minus 80. So a lot of the stuff we are working with was collected uh, in the past, like, 10 years, 15 years. Yeah. Even further back, some of the rare venoms. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I didn't do any snake venom collection, but I did do some monitor venom collection, and that's oh, similar. Wow. You just get it out, um, get it out from their jaws and then, freeze dry it down, spin it, centrifuge it, and then make it back up in liquid. What type of things were you studying with the monitor venom? I was just actually helping a friend of mine, um, James Dobson. So his old PhD was on monitor venom research, Uh, bioactivities of the venom, just what it does really because we know so little. Yeah, I I did help prepare some skulls for CT and MRI scanning as well. So actually looking at the glands to uh, show people, hey, look, there is actually a gland in there. Um, We're not just making this up. What what species in particular were you looking at when you were doing the monitors? Did you kind of do like a variety or was it like just Komodos or? Yeah, you had a variety of skulls, um, Parentes, Scalaris, Tristus, uh, a few others. So, yeah, his whole PhD was based on just the Varanids and also the Gila monsters. 
so getting help with that was really cool because that was like the first thing that drew me into that lab was the Komodo research. Because uh, I mean, Komodo dragons, come on, who doesn't yeah. want to study yeah. them? Awesome. <clears throat> They're only the biggest lizard on the planet, you know. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, yeah, none of the monitor lizards, or at least from what we can see, like they're ve- they're venomous. They've got well, some of them are at least, and they've got some kind of venom gland and venom toxins. But it's not like snake venom where you're worried about it as a human. Um, no, you're not going to be worried about the venom side of it. More the foot side of the teeth shredding mm. your tendons up. Yeah, I mean, I've only personally really ever kept little stuff, and like being hit by Ackies and Tristus and Scalaris from time to time, like, you could tell that there was something more there than just teeth. Like, you know, you mm. get, like, that weird sort of, like, aching, throbbing pains and stuff like that through your hands, a bit of swelling and stuff. Like, you're like you know, yeah, if that was yeah, a snake bite, you wouldn't get that, you know, as in far as pythons go, but, yeah. Yeah. And you get somewhere, some of, like, the Asian water monitors, people bleed for, yeah, way longer than you'd expect from just the bite that they get. And same as even like the Tristus and some of the Ackies and other ones, people say they seem to have those effects that just don't really add up to just a little bit of a cut, you know? Yeah. Um, I haven't been nailed by Touchwood any monitors yet. Before moving up to the zoo, I've only kept rusty monitors privately and they're yeah. only still young. But now I'm working with, yeah, Lacey's, Parentes. Um, I'd rather not get nailed by one of the big Parentes. <laughs> They keep you. They keep you a little bit nervous. Yeah, yeah, they're a fair size. Those ones. Yeah, we sure. got one big boy that's he's massive and he's yeah he, he always is just watching you the minute you enter the enclosure. Eyes are on you. Um, and they don't come off. Yeah, there's something yeah. raptor like about them. They they just switch on. Monitors are funny like that. Like they just. That's why I love them so much, even the little ones. Like, it's just, they're just a different mm. kettle of fish compared to, you know, like a, a gamut or a skink or something, in my opinion. There's that extra level of intelligence there in their yeah. eyes. You can see it when you, when they look at you. Oh, you can yeah. see them thinking for sure. Yeah. 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 You were saying you were doing, have you done your PhD or are you currently doing it at the moment? Oh, I guess I'm currently still doing it. I've just submitted it. So it's under yep. external review by other experts in the field. Yep. So my, my actual PhD was on African vipers, in particular yep. the bitters, uh, the bitters like the puff adders, gaboon vipers, horned adders, that whole genus. Yeah. So, yeah, really medically important snakes. Uh, the puff adder is probably the most medically important or second most medically important snake in all of Africa. And, and that's then, just because of the amount of contact that people come and come with them? Yeah, definitely. So... They're like not as venomous as an inland taipan, but no one's ever died from an inland taipan. Whereas, yeah, puff kills hundreds, thousands of people a year. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just the amount they come into contact with it. I mean, Africa's healthcare is what you would imagine it is, pretty much non-existent in some places. Um, average, if you're lucky. So they've still got a long way to go in their healthcare system. And just how rural things are, farmers will get bitten. They won't get to hospital for days. Yeah. Um, and by that point, you're pretty screwed. What, what, what's the venom kind of like on those guys? Is it like really necrotic or like, I mean, I don't know much about African venomous snakes in particular. but 
No, yeah, really necrotic. Yeah, they've got a ton of cytotoxins in their venom. So most of the people you see get bitten that survive are missing digits, fingers, toes, missing a limb. Uh, So the long-term effects are pretty much always there. Um, Even the little vipers um, have pretty cytotoxic venom in the bitters genus. And then a lot of them are also anticoagulants. They cause hemorrhage and uh, stop your blood from clotting. Uh, what was really cool is most people always thought that only elapids were really neurotoxic and that yeah. vipers vipers don't really have neurotoxins, but I showed that most bitters do. Um, quite a lot of them have some neurotoxins. So they've also got that going for them. So just really complex venoms, really complex venoms. It sounds like they just hit you with everything. Yeah. Some of them, like in the quantities of venom that some of those big vipers give off, the Gaboon Viper and the Puff Adder. Yeah, because they're um, a large, large adder. <clears throat> yeah. Um, 100 milligrams in a bite sort of thing. Oof. Yeah. So, yeah. Not, yeah, not something I'd want to be bitten by. Especially, yeah. Especially I'd still love to there. keep them, of course. <laughs> Bring them on. But... The gaboons have got really impressive fangs on them too, don't they? Because it's just their sheer size. Yeah. Aren't yeah, they like definitely. 50 mil long or something like that, along those lines? See images where they like go straight through someone's hand. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't sound like it would tickle. Because <laughs> you guys don't uh, keep any vents, do you? Nah, not at all. I don't trust myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to keep poigas, if you could call that a venomous snake. I mean, you, I suppose it is venomous, but, you know. It is what it is. I mean, I mean, if you're a pigeon, it's one of the most venomous snakes in the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah no. Stuck on Luke Pigeon now. <laughs> <laughs> Start a new trend. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's funny. People always say, oh, what's the most venomous snake in the world? It's like, that's such a arbitrary question because, yeah. like, a bow eager is one of the most venomous snakes in the world if you're a bird. Mm. Um so it depends on the venom all depends on what it's going into. Yeah, because that whole scale is kind of a bit off, isn't it? The oh, whole LD50 yeah, it's, scale. It's really off. Yeah. Yeah. So, were they talking about redoing that? Like, I don't know what their plan is, but I, I, I don't really look into it that much because I think it's just a load of rubbish. I mean, yeah. who cares how much venom kills however many mice? Exactly. Um, we're not mice. 50 people we're very whatever. different That's from right. mice. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I guess, you know, it gives, gives someone, you know, something to talk about. I'll oh, go to Australia. There's this many of the world's deadliest snakes there kind of thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But, people love to put it in a category or something, right? Make it easy. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, that's the thing. Yeah, everyone loves to put stuff in categories. So, Some of the research I did um, just towards the end of, the, end of my PhD was I collected blood from Different animals like uh, cane toads, blue tongue skinks, chickens, mice, and then we had human blood as well. So, looking at like how the same venom affects all these different animals' blood, and you'd have completely different effects. So, the one snake venom would do four different things depending on what animal's blood you were testing it on. Jeez, uh, that's crazy. Can you? So like- yeah. Like, what, what do you mean it was doing to the blood? Like, just, can you elaborate? So, for one of them, um, the horned adder, 
Uh, really, really cool little African viper. It had clot amphibian blood. It had stop lizard blood from clotting. It had stop chicken blood from clotting. And then for rat blood, it would clot it, but they'd be weak clots. So a different different effect again. Yeah. Um, so obviously it relates to their prey, right? They don't feed on certain snakes, only feed on one thing. Sometimes like Boiga being bird specialists. So their venom is just so precise um, and it has evolved to target bird physiology. Mm. Yeah. So that's why it has no real strong effect on humans. Mm. Um, and you see that a lot with a lot of the snake venoms. They, they have completely different effects on their prey than they do to humans or, or rats or something they don't eat. It's definitely pretty cool. I'd love to learn more about that stuff, but I'm just like, every time I read a scientific paper, it just goes straight over my head. (laughs) (laughs) I get some bits of it, but yeah. No, that's definitely interesting to hear. Did you do much work on Australian snake venom or any sea snake? Because I know um, he was, Brian was pretty into his sea snake venom. Yeah, I did. I read his book. I didn't do too much on sea snakes. (laughs) What, What I did when I first started the lab was, my whole project and my first paper I published was on mud adders, so the Denisonia genus, uh, the divisors, and then the ornamental snake, which I still haven't seen in person, which annoys the hell out of me. Um, <laughs> spent like two years studying that. Divisors you can find. I mean, you go herping anywhere on the East Coast, inland a little bit, and you're probably going to see one. Yeah. Um, but the ornamental snake's pretty rare, and I haven't managed to crack that one happening yet. But yeah, studying them and I found out that their venom was anticoagulant and that it's very specific to frogs, frog blood. Yep. Um, which makes sense because that's what they eat. Yeah. Um, the frog specialists. So that's what sort of started me. I've always, after doing that project, always been really curious on how venom affects prey. I, I mean, the medical stuff interests me too, but I'd rather look at the snakes themselves and their ecology. Uh, plenty of people work on anti-venom. They don't need me for that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, what about some of the, I suppose, you would, like the pharmaceutical side of things? Because there's heaps of benefits from snake venom for all that kind of things too. Did you look at any of that or you were just kind of? Oh, I peripherally not in depth. One thing I have done yeah. a fair bit on is uh, novel first aids. So there's a lot of research going into little like small molecule therapeutics where you can take it as a pill in the field little tablet or something, and that'll neutralize hopefully all, but at least a majority of the toxins buying you time to get to hospital. Um, wow. Because cool. obviously there's first aid in terms of we have our pressure bandages and trying to slow down the effect of the venom. But we don't have any first aid in terms of medication that we can take to actually neutralize toxins yet. And obviously anti-venom, you've got to have it at a hospital. You can't just yeah. jab yourself with anti-venom in the field. Yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of research going into it. There's um, a big group in America who I collaborated with, and they're doing human clinical trials already. Wow. So, oh wow! And how they're looking pretty promising those trials. Yeah, I, um, all the work we've done on it so far is very promising. It was an, I believe it was a cancer drug beforehand, and they scrapped it for that. But uh, now they're repurposing it. Hopefully, going to use it for. Yeah, snake venom first aid, and it, it'd be like it'd be working for every country around the world because it's really broadly applicable to 
the verasplitib is one of the drugs it neutralizes all toxins regardless of the specific snake. So all PLA2 toxins of a certain type. So all snakes or most of them share that toxin. So fingers crossed. That'll just be an absolute game changer. If you imagine, you know, like depending on what its costs are, if like some little farmer over in Africa in in rural Africa or something is able to have one of those on his in his sock pocket or something like that while he's working, mm. and he's able to take that and give himself a bit of time to hopefully get to hospital. Yeah, and potentially keep his limbs, you know, like yeah. if it... It's always good to keep your limbs, right? <laughs> exactly. And, I mean, he's like even if you're travelling in Australia and you've got your, your first aid kit, you know, one day it could just be you, just like a, you buy your Panadol and you stick it in your first aid kit, you could yeah. just have that in there for just in case. Like, yeah. Especially if you're out, you know, in the middle of Australia, buy that little bit extra time. Oh, have? definitely. Like, that's the biggest thing is time. Mm. Yeah, they're putting a lot of research into it, so I wouldn't be surprised within the next five to ten years if we see it really starting to come out in some countries at least. Yeah, that's awesome. I didn't even know they were working or anything like that. That's actually really cool. Mm. I did a bit of work with it um, looking at if it was effective for black snake venoms, so sedecus, because yeah. they have a lot of those PLA2 toxins in them. Mm. So... And, yeah, we showed that it was very effective in the research we were doing at neutralising those toxins for black snakes. That's probably one of the most common groups of snakes that we come in contact with as well around Australia, whether it be your, your moles yeah. or your red bellies or tigers or something. So, yeah. And they are one you find can give you a pretty, like the, the toxins they have that hit your muscles, they can give you some pretty painful and bites that give you some long-term effects too. So if you could neutralize those early, prevent that. Yeah, I know I know of a fellow who uh, I think he got done by a red belly at some stage and every now and then he kind of has to tap the side of his head so his eye kind of just comes back into focus, like the muscle in his <laughs> eyes a bit wacky. So, yeah, and he said, yeah, that was from a, from a red belly. That wasn't me. I've just got a wacky eye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've already got one that's not. That's really interesting, though. Hey, yeah. like that, that just shows how far medicine's actually coming. Like, you know, albeit five, ten years away, that's that's a game changer, really. And the yeah. fact that it started as like a cancer drug, yeah. and then you know, it's just kind of diverted that way. Mm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I don't um, have anything really to do now with that research, but it'll be interesting to see how far they go with it. Because um, there's a lot of labs all around the world working on it now. Yeah. Uh, obviously, like for obvious reasons. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean that. Um, uh, what is it? Minutes to Die documentary where they're talking mm-hmm. about all the you know kind of like more third world countries and stuff like that. I suppose where you know they don't have a lot of healthcare and stuff or accessibility to that sort of stuff. Like you know, the amount of people that die from snake bites a year is incredible in those countries. Mm. There was, um, like, yeah, in Africa where most of my snake research was based, yeah, hundreds of thousands of people every year affected by it. There were some bad cases in previous years in some countries. It came out that the hospitals were actually, because the antivenom so expensive, some of the staff would sell it out the back door and people were getting bitten coming to the hospital and there wouldn't be antivenom or they'd give them water and saline and tell them they were getting antivenom. Mm. Um, you had stories of stuff like that and just nightmare stories that you think, geez, glad we don't have that problem here. But 
that's pretty nice. But hopefully we can do something about it over there. So obviously kind of moving away from your your research there, that was really interesting though. I have to admit that was that was awesome. Yeah, I learned something. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but like what you're doing now is a complete different change now. Like that's Yeah. Hmm. Very yeah, it's um so, I actually have to keep the snakes now. <laughs> <laughs> how, how'd you yeah, kind of come about getting into that role? Um, yeah, the job was open and I applied and thought, okay, time for a change of scenery. Um, it's a yeah, so it's a small zoo in Townsville. I mean, it's not that small. It is um, fairly large and small team though, which is exciting because we all do a bit of everything. So I'm the reptile keeper or one of the two reptile keepers, uh, and I still do stuff. I work with the koalas, wombats, uh, do a bit of stuff with the bird department as well, so getting to work with a lot of cool animals, not just the not just the snakes and lizards. Not just the venom, the dried venom. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, it's good after all these years. I always said that I probably would never keep venomous snakes, and here I am keeping inland taipans and coastals and mulgas and tiger snakes. So, yeah, I've never actually been up to Billabong. I'd love to go there. I think coming up, you can uh, you can help me feed the crocs. Oh, don't tempt me. <laughs> <laughs> the, off, the offer's been made. Now you got to come. Yeah, no, I have to, to line that one up for sure. <laughs> could, I be mean, that, could be a trap. Could be a trap. Could be lunch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was Lots a big selling table. point to come up here. I thought, oh, crocodiles. Yeah. There's not many chances yeah. you get to work with them and keep them, so, yeah. yeah. Well, Do you ever think you'll get back into that, into into the field, like studying or anything, or are you just you're happy to p- pursue that path that you're on now? Or Not not full-time. I wouldn't mind collaborating yeah. and still being involved with unis and stuff, but yeah. not full-time. It's not, it doesn't really suit my lifestyle. That's uh, fair enough, yeah. Working in academia, it's not a very secure job. Um, yeah. A lot of one-year contracts, two-year contracts, bouncing around between different cities all the time, different unis. Mm. I'm more ready to settle down and stay in one place for a while. That's uh, fair enough. The missos nagging me to have kids like you guys just had, so uh, <laughs> um, that'll make you stay in one spot. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Not looking to do too much moving around. Um, yeah. That's pretty, it's a pretty, pretty cool job to kind of land those, you know, as far as a day yeah. to day. Like that's a lot of people's dream is to land something like that. Did you have any kind of like prior experience doing any zookeeping beforehand or was there any sort of like, did you have your own, your own personal collection beforehand? Yes, yeah, so I've had my private collection for quite a few years now and as um, you guys know, I've chatted about it, um, I keep a pretty diverse collection, not just blue tongues and carpet pythons. Um, yep. So I've kept kept a ton of uh, geckos is what I really started in. Oedura, which yep. I love but would never keep again. I sold all my Oedura off. <laughs> <laughs> so you see a bit of a trend with them. <laughs> shitting on the glass all day, yeah. every day. Um, yeah, but yeah painting the glass. Yeah, kept a ton of Oedura, Strophurus, uh, a lot of thick-tailed. Um, Stone geckos, box pattern geckos, leaf tails. So I, I sort of made the decision. I was like, oh, geckos are keeping so many. was taking up a lot of time. I moved away from that a bit, got into skinks a lot. 
um, especially your social skinks, your Gidgees, or your Agania. I love the Agania. Can't go wrong with them. Good group. And then, yeah, Rusty Monitors. Got the world's most aggressive Wyoming Python behind me. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, They're absolute food machines. Dragons. So, yeah, I've kept a pretty diverse collection, except I, um, I obviously worked in research on venomous snakes. I had that background as well, the um, academic side and the teaching side. I did a lot of teaching at the uni, um, yeah. which fits in really well now at the zoo. I do a lot of shows. Probably half my day yeah. I'm talking, doing shows. Yeah. Um, so that works well. Do you, do you find it that, that it's um, rewarding to kind of be educating the public and stuff on this, or do you get kind of any um, hecklers or anything from the stands? Especially <laughs> the knowledge too, yeah. coming from that venom background as well. Yeah, that's um, It's funny you say that. I had a heckler the other day that was asking me these niche questions. Like, you would not know to ask that question unless you knew the answer. Um, he was like, how many, chamb- how many chambers does the crocodile's heart have? And I was like, well. He's sliding, yeah. Like, I do know this, um, four, but whatever. Um, yeah, I was like, I, I obviously know these answers, but yeah. He was just trying to set you up, just to yeah. make you look silly by the sounds of it. He, he really was, but I was fine. I knew all the answers, so. Whatever. Put him in um, his place. <laughs> yeah, he's probably sitting there scratching the going, God, what else can I ask? What else can I ask? <laughs> but no, it's, yeah, it's definitely rewarding. Like, I mean, one of the great things is 99.9% of people who come to the zoo are coming because they want to, right? Like, yeah, they're excited exactly. to be there. So you've always just got these excited people who are so keen to hear what you have to say and see what you're showing off. So that's, yeah, that's enjoyable for sure. What, what sort of, um, like, routine do you have on, like, most days? Like, do you kind of, like, start off feeding the crocs or you just kind of get in do some maintenance and then do, like, a feeding round? Or, you know, what's, like, kind of like a standard day at the zoo for you? I mean, if anyone wants to get into zookeeping, I'd say I hope you like groundskeeping as well because <laughs> you do a lot of raking and shoveling and, like, landscaping. Um, but then, yeah, and then doing that, getting things nice, ready for the day, working on different enclosures, so doing a lot of renos at the moment on different exhibits and just fitting them in where we can. And then when the day starts, yeah, you're doing your shows. I usually do two reptile shows and two croc shows a day, uh, morning and afternoon. And then I do some other stuff throughout the day and feeding your animals, cleaning your enclosures. So it's always pretty, pretty full on, pretty go, go, go. But, yeah, there's some great animals there that I haven't got to keep privately particularly things like parentes um, and lace monitors. I've never had the space yeah. to keep those, nor probably the budget to pay for their food there. <laughs> um, so now I get to keep those every day and it's work, which is nice. I'm getting paid to do it. Um, working with the Crocs is awesome. So I've uh, been getting trained up doing the Croc shows, which is a big sort of stepping stone, but that's been going well. That's been going really well. Um, Weird. Do you have many exotics at that zoo? Or? Oh, no, not yet, sadly. But uh, yeah, down the line, uh, if anyone from any other zoos is watching, drop me a message. <laughs> um, we, we have corn snakes, which, funnily yeah. enough, everyone's like, oh, they're just stupid corn snakes because, like, they're so common overseas, right? 
I think they're awesome. I think they're they're beautiful. They're really pretty. I'm pretty sure they're pretty common in Sydney, aren't they? Luke? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> like, I think like there's wild populations, isn't there? Yeah, there is apparently. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty common on the Gold Coast too, to be honest. Um, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think they're pretty cool. They're really fun snakes. Um, yeah, that's the thing. It's something different as well, you know. Like, yeah, yeah. It's just different. Um, we have gators, and I love them. They're absolutely just so much fun to work with the gators. They're um, really different to the crocodiles, aren't they? Oh, so like so different. Um, yeah, com- completely different behaviorally. Uh, it's it, like puppy dogs compared to them. It'll be interesting to see. The gators haven't really warmed up too much at the zoo yet, so they're still really, yeah, they're not meeting you at the gate yet or nothing. They're not showing any real aggression whatsoever, but it'll be interesting to see how their behavior changes because I've only been there for the past three or four months, so it was already a bit cold when I got up here. If if you can call what Townsville gets cold. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to say that. <laughs> what, what is the climate like up there? Hot. <laughs> hot. It's similar to Cairns, isn't it, but not as humid and hot? No, not as humid. I feel like it doesn't rain as much down here either. Um, yeah. But I think the coldest nights we had in winter and the dead of winter – were like 10 degrees. Oh, um, yeah. The days cool. were still 24, 22, 25 in the dead of winter. That sounds pretty good. It's, um, I'm not, yeah, I haven't been minding it, but we'll see how I go in a couple more months when I'm sweating on Sweating. Yeah. That's the trade off. My car was telling me it was three degrees the other morning. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I'm looking forward to the herping season up here because. Yeah, it should should be really good. And I live out on acreage actually too, so Oh beautiful. Mountains Is that your first there. season up there? What's that? Is that your first season up there? Yeah, it will be, yeah. I've um yeah. done some herping trips up north before, but I mean I'll be out every weekend um looking for stuff to photograph. Is your missus into herps as well or? Um, not really. She doesn't really come herping, but she she likes the our private collection. She'll feed. Yeah. If it's not the snakes, she's not real fussed on snakes. But yeah. all the lizards, especially all the dragons, she loves all the dragons. Because um, I'm keeping some long-nosed dragons, some peninsula dragons as well. So she loves them. That's wicked. Yeah. Definitely not your run-of-the-mill beardy. No, <laughs> no, no beardies. Um, but, yeah, and then I... I was going to say no blue tongues, but I have a western blue tongue and a shingleback. No, no the westerns normal. Are awesome, I love the westerns. Yeah, I've got to get some more of them blues. for sure. Yeah. When I, I was living in Brisbane, I had all these plans to do big outdoor setups for the western blueies, but I don't think it'll work in Townsville. Too humid. Yeah, they're pretty arid little guys, aren't they? Yeah. Um, same with the shingleback. I would have loved to keep shinglebacks outside, but I'd never even attempt it up here. Yeah. That's uh, that's a species that I'd love to get too, but I just don't have the room and I, I wouldn't want to do them outside here either, especially with how wet that it's been here. That's just Yeah. I mean, I keep mine in a pretty large tank and even then I look at them every day, I'm like, it's still not big enough. Um, yep. You know, there are species that roam around. Uh, so... Maybe I'll just make a whole bedroom his one day or something. That'd be pretty cool. Nice. 
it's not, it's not a bad thought. I've often thought about just stripping this whole room, putting a couple of big trees in it and a whole bunch of red sand on the ground and getting a couple of gill and I out and just going, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that would be fun to walk into, right? Be pretty cool. Well, it would be nice cool. to be having in your room, trying to find them and be pretty cool. Well, if you put enough logs in here, it would be nearly impossible. You'd have to spend hours to find the buggers. Yeah. <clears throat> Do you get out herping much at all? Or? Um, yeah, a fair bit. I try to. Um, the local spot back in Brisbane was always Mount Glorious. So yeah. that was all right. Uh, you get death adders up there. They're always fun to see. Stephen's banded snakes. Yeah, we could. Big carpet pythons, pink tongues. But uh, locally, Brisbane's, yeah, it's all right, but there's not a huge diversity. Yeah, and then finding the time now is the hard part. Just, yeah. yeah, well, I mean, doing the zoo work, you'd be doing long days there and then probably not wanting to do much of a night time after that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I'm glad I cut down my collection a lot before moving up here too because, yeah, I come home and then got to feed everything here too and clean everything here and it's just around the clock. But, it, I mean... I say that and I still can't part with anything because I just enjoy it too much. You know, you, you try to downsize and you just can't. Yeah, it gets like that. And the worst is when you sell everything and then realise you shouldn't have sold everything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah. What have you got? You've got boids and leafies and chameleons again, so you're getting back in Yeah, up. Yeah, I probably won't get too much more than that. I think I've found my limit. <laughs> and I'll just kind of focus on them, I think. So that's my plan is to... <clears throat> yeah, so I still have a bit of time to do other things as well, you know, because I want to get out herping a bit more. So do a couple of trips up up to Queensland, Cairns, North Cairns, and stuff like that. So and try and see, try and photograph all the leafies. Mm. So I don't want to have like if that way, if my wife's got to feed stuff, it's not too tasking on her, you know. Yeah. Especially trying to wrangle two kids at the same time. <clears throat> Where would you go bits. herping up around uh, North Queensland? I'd love to go up Cairns way. You know, mm. up that way, Iron Range, see some green tree pythons, cornudas, that kind of thing, chameleon geckos. But um, I'd say the best trip, trip I did was Cooktown. Um, yeah, yeah, Cooktown region, just so much diversity. Um, yeah, the roads. I mean, there's not many people up there, so you can just hurt pretty cruise along and yeah, really good. Yeah, that's probably my bucket list place is Iron Range. I know Luke's was. Had to see Gill and I and stuff like that, but I think mine's up Iron Range way to, to get up there and see some of the stuff. Like it's just probably green tree pythons, to be honest, because that's what got me into reptiles to start with. But chasing is like a drug. Once you get that exactly. under your belt, you're going to be That's like, right. You need the next one and the next one and the next one. Yeah, oh, that's de- That's definitely, definitely it. Yeah. But um, no, I was chatting with the missus today. I think we're going to do like a little camp trip probably the end of the month somewhere up north somewhere, just in New South Wales, but a bit further north. So. Wicked. Try and sneak in a night there. Yeah, yeah I mean, you won't go wrong in North Queensland. Like, the weather's yeah. never bad. Yeah. So if you go in the right yeah. season, you'll see what you want to see for sure. Now yes. I'm looking at overseas. I'm thinking, I'm thinking Africa, Asia, trying to plan some really big trips. Did you ever get overseas with any of your research at all, or was that kind of you just was all in the lab? In, in it was Australia? all in the lab, sadly, especially <laughs> yeah. um, COVID hit right when I started the PhD in 2020. So I probably yeah, would have okay. gone to Africa in the past couple of years if that hadn't happened. But um, 
Yeah, there's always there's always in the future. I got a lot of contacts in Africa, so really keen to plan a big herp trip through there. Look for all the vipers, and um, that'd be pretty cool. And they got some pretty cool lizards over there too. Um, it's it's funny being like always snake venom research. Everyone wants you to be the snake guy, but I'll stick to lizards every day of the week. Um, yeah, got good personalities, lizards. I think so, anyway. <laughs> yeah. One of the I things I'm really looking movie. forward to at the zoo is getting a big monitor collection going. Um, one of the exhibits we're going to work on soon will be like a semi-arid exhibit. So things like Gillens and uh, Brevi Quarter and things like that are definitely on the to-get yeah. list and to keep. Real visits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love the Brevi Quarter. Yeah. All your dwarf <laughs> monitors are great. Like, yeah. I'd, I'd keep every dwarf monitor under the sun if I could. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I've got so many I'd love to keep, but I just, I can't part with what I've got to make the room for other things. Like I'd love to have Kidorum. <laughs> I'd love to be mm. able to have like Pilbarensis and Hamalensis and stuff. Um, yeah. I'd love to have a good range of Tristus actually, just because like there's so many different localities of those guys that I'd just dig. They're such good lizards. It's like keeping an empty box with Tristus, though. That's the only downside is, like, you get a fleeting glimpse of him and you're like, oh, there he is. It's kind of like a herp, you know, it's, and then all of a sudden they're gone. It's just time with them, eh, the monitors. you just got to put in so much time to get them to trust you. We've got this little Scolaris at work and just been bonding with it day after day. He's finally hand-feeding now. Oh, that's um, cool. Which is awesome, yeah, finally got him hand-feeding. Um, but you just got to put in that constant effort to train him. Yeah, my, my male Tristus, for example, he'll tongue feed for me. Um, mm. But, you know, he'll shy away from me quite quickly if I'm just walking past the room or something like that. But I'm rarely here. You know, I don't have don't have the time to hang around so much. My Gillens, though, Gillens are just a different personality again. They'll all come out and tongue feed. Like, they're brazen little Gillens, those things. That's why I keep so many of them is they're just so – I don't have to do anything to train them, if you know what I mean. Like, mm. they're just – they're out all the time. They're ready all the time. How do you find your uh, boy Loki for handleability? Uh, found out she's a girl because she laid eggs on me. Um, <laughs> nah. I, I, I think, I honestly think that like if I had the time to, to seriously put it into her, she'd be pretty good because she's a smart lizard. Um, like at some stage I did have her kind of trained to kind of like walk up my arm for food and stuff, which was pretty cool. Uh, but never bitten when handled. But I don't handle her a lot either, you know. Like I don't, I don't see it that way with her, and I don't kind of plan to just do like, you know, three weeks of hard training and then all of a sudden not do anything because it's like, what's the point? Because that's just going to go yeah. off her. But yeah, she, she's one of those animals that I'm really struggling with at the moment, just because in my head I'm going, you've gotten to such a stage where you're you're bigger than what I'd like you to be in this enclosure. And I can't give her more. And yet she's one of my favorite lizards. So I'm kind of having that dilemma where I'm starting to reach out to a few close friends and stuff and kind of go, hey, do you reckon you can give her way more than what I'm doing? Because that's what she deserves. Um, and it's a heartbreaking decision, but, you mm. know, it is what it is. You got to do the right thing by the lizard at the end of the day. It's, yeah, too cruel to keep them otherwise. But bloody cool lizards. But yeah, mangroves, man, they've got a bad reputation of being pretty psychotic I'll give them that 
I should uh, I should have some soon, so I'll find out for myself. Yeah. Um, yeah, looking forward to keeping mangroves and seeing what I can do with them. Um, They're one of those ones that I, I, I mean, I haven't delved too much into it, but I haven't heard a lot of people having like really good success with them as far as like handability and stuff goes just because of their temperament. I don't, I don't put it past them. I think they're a very smart animal. So I don't see why you couldn't like at the end of the day, they are a monitor lizard like most, but I think it might just take that little bit of extra time and patience with them. Yeah. yeah. It's so hard with your large monitors. Um, Cause even, even when they're being nice, they can hurt you so easily. Yeah. Um, I've got a friend at work that I'm trying to train just to really bond with and train. It's uh, it's not fully grown, but it's, it's big enough. And it was sitting on my arm, just chilling on my arm the other day. And then it just obviously was like, just wanted to move a bit. It wasn't being aggressive at all. It just was moving a little bit. Managed to hook one of his back legs across my chest. Just gave me a good scratch across the chest with his claws. Um, and that was him being nice, right? That was him yeah. being gentle. Um, if they go off at you, you know about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy, yeah. hey? They're, they're such powerful lizards for their size. Like, Yeah, and just the sharp claws and the teeth, like it's mm. all that extra stuff to deal with. Oh, well, I, yeah, that's my worst nightmare, getting bitten by one of the big parentheses. Yeah, you'd know about it for a long time. I was always one of those guys that I, I really did want to get lace monitors. And for the what I believe to be the right reasons, I never pulled the trigger because I was like, you know what, they are that next kind of size and, and all the rest of it. And that's why mm. I kind of went for the mangrove. And after having the mangrove, I'm going, man, like when I do handle her, which as I said, was infrequently, just like you say, she's so powerful. She can just be like just holding on to you and you just tore up by the end of it. Yeah, mm. it doesn't take much. That's why I'll stick to the little stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've got um got some lace monitors at work I'm working with, and yeah, trying to train them as well. And one of them, the female, she won't have a bar of it. So putting all the sort of effort into the boy now. Um, that, that's I, I could be wrong, but that seems pretty common along most monitor species. Like I find the boys are, are very easily trained if you want to call it that like even if it just be like tongue training or something like that like they're always going to be the first to kind of pick up on that whereas the girls seem to be a bit more wary mm. I don't know if it's like a maternal instinct kind of thing yeah especially you know whereas most men are just dumb this food will go for it <laughs> uh, dangle six pack in front of me and I'll follow the tongs as well yeah <laughs> uh. Too funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's funny. But no, nah, yeah, <clears throat> I do love big monitors, but yeah, it's just that um, I've always wanted to keep laces as well because obviously, like, they're you know from this area, so I could keep them in an outdoor pit. But yeah, there's just that size factor that you know I wouldn't trust them around, like my kids or anything around them, kind of thing. You know, like it only takes just that one thing, and you know, you can lose a finger, kind of thing. So. That's why I reckon you're in the yeah. best position, though, mate, is because you're getting paid to look after them at the zoo. You know, you, exactly. You don't have to bring them home. You can just do it on your daily basis as your job. Yeah, it is. Um, it's a good way to do it for sure. I was thinking for you guys, Heath monitors would be a good one to keep down yeah. there too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because yeah. they don't get as big as your laces. No. It's beautiful in the hatches too. Stunning. Mm. Yeah. 
Well, well, I'll put it, better put that on my bucket list now too. Yeah, I'm just restricted to space, so I don't really have that much space. You keep going the way you're going, mate. You're not going to be able to fit in there to do these podcasts. Oh, no. You saw these these enclosures behind. They're huge, so there's not much space in front of them, so it'll be a little tight little space. I'm utilising as much space as I can, let's put it that way. I like what you guys are doing there too. Um, Say with your leaf tiles, your chameleon geckos back there. It's just so much more enjoyable seeing them in the big tanks. Oh, definitely. Um, definitely. Even your geckos, people keep geckos in like tubs and it's like, no, it's not right. Yeah. No, I just love coming in here at night time and everything's out and hunting and you can actually see it easier and all that kind of stuff, you know. It, it makes it more enjoyable for me. Like I'm sure the, the animals benefit from it, but in the mm. day coming here and being able to just see everything, it's just I like it. Yeah. <laughs> I came in here last night and I was like, oh, I wanted to check on the Galliardus because I was like, I haven't seen all four of them in one kind of like outing since I got them. And I quickly shone the phone torch into their, their tank and all four of them were just like on the rocks, in the spin effects, hanging off the wall, like just all over the place. I was like, oh, sweet, they're all good. You know, but yeah, it's so cool <clears> to <throat> see them in that sort of environment that kind of more closely mimics where they come from rather than, as you say, a plastic tub or, or or whatever, or you know maybe a bit more of a sterile type setup, but yeah, it's fun too. You know, it gives the animal something to do that's a bit different, a bit more mm. enrichment. Yeah, yeah so you've got some pretty good setups too. I was looking through your Instagram yeah. the other day. Yeah, I mean, like everyone, I started with pretty bad setups, I guess, <laughs> um, and then just slowly trying to get them all to that point where you're happy with them. I mean, I, I kept thick-tailed geckos in tubs when I had a big yeah. collection of them, and um, yeah, they were healthy. But then after a while, you're like, oh, nah, I'd rather really just keep less, but in bigger setups. So that's been yeah. with my private collection. It's just been all about redoing tanks one at a time now. Um, it's funny how it goes that, that way. way. Yeah. Yeah. Now, even now, I'm like, in my head, I'm like, oh, what one should I do next? Um, <laughs> I've just got four to do straight away, which I'm like, I should have just done one at a time. But <laughs> well, we'll get there. I think my next uh, big one, big project at home will be I've recently got some Boyd's Forest Dragons. So I'd love to do a huge, just massive enclosure and house my Boyd's, my leaf tabs, and my pink tongues together. Yeah, um, oh, that'd be cool. But, yeah, just the size of the tank, I'm trying to decide how big I want it to be. Oh, you're giving me ideas now. Because <laughs> I thought about doing, like, a big floor-to-ceiling one for the Boyds. Mm. So I've got them in, like, a that's a 1,200 high, but I, th- I think my room's two metres high, two, 230 or something like that, 2030. So I thought I was doing floor-to-ceiling and 600 deep by, like, 1,200 wide. <laughs> but then I could keep Cornelius in there as well. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, I think about- the Cornutus, they'll get along with Boyd's. Have you kept them with Boyd's before? Or no, it? never. I have heard of people doing it. Yeah, I've heard of a lot um, of people doing it. But- <clears throat> and one way they got around it was just having like, you know, like you have your background, but then you have like something like with like a 20 mil gap or something against the background so the geckos will stay in the cracks. Mm. Boyd's can run up and down, whatever. And they won't piss the geckos off too much. Mm. Like give them somewhere they can get into so that way they're out of the way and then 
the boys will just I don't think the geckos will know the boys too much but you know boys like to run around just a fair bit but mm. giving them that little bit of a, a crevice or something that they can get out of the way of the boys running up and down the background up and down the branches and stuff wouldn't stress them out too much yeah I'll have to I'll have to give that a try I can I can see that working pretty well mm. it's definitely a good idea yeah, I'm all, I like the idea of keeping things, you know, obviously with limitations and you've got to monitor it and all that kind of stuff, but I like, you know, having certain things that kind of come from the same area. Mm. Mm. I think the biggest thing is just the space. Great. If you give them enough space. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, the more space you can give them, the better. <laughs> and obviously if you can give them little, like, micro hides and habitats and stuff as well away from them will benefit them as well. But... um you know, I mean, you're not going to keep green tree pythons with your boys, forest dragons. <laughs> Taronga Zoo keeps a green tree python with a bunch of green tree frogs. Yeah, I, I think I've, yeah, I haven't seen it, but I've heard a few people say that. I was watching them on the interesting. Yeah, they have like their own TV show or whatever that occasionally comes on. They were talking about how the frogs were harassing the green tree python, so the green tree was stressed out and not shedding properly and stuff. It's like, oh, that's a bit interesting. Big enough bloody green tree frog would have a crack at the green tree python. Yeah, they're pretty brazen. Hey, like even my magnificent tree, tree frog, when I go to like tong feet, that, that thing just launches out of the tank and lands on my head pretty much. Yeah. Try to eat my ear. Yeah. An interesting yeah, nah. crab you see in the zoo sometimes is coastal taipans with like uh, different pythons. Yeah, um, right. I'm not sure I'm game to try and get nailed from above and below at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably more inclined to get nailed from above than you are from below. <clears throat> yeah. But um, I remember seeing a a picture of I think it was a taipan trying to mate a python. Was, <laughs> I think it was in a zoo. It was in an enclosure. I think I did the rounds a while ago on social media. Uh, they give some feisty hybrids. <laughs> um, people always worry about that, don't they? They're breeding this with that and they're going to make this. <laughs> Venomous pythons. <laughs> Madman. Have you got any sort of like big plans for your, your private collection at all? Well, I'm still in two minds about like should I downsize more or um, – I think, yeah, I'm really happy with, like, what I've got at the moment. I would love to get more of certain species, like more western blue tongues, maybe more shinglebacks um, if I can figure out how to keep them in a bigger setup. Um, yeah. And then I feel like I'm keeping most of the things I want now privately. Centralian blue tongues I still don't have, so um, if you're breeding them this season, anybody, drop me a message. Um, I... I think they're awesome too. Because um, I did that research with blue tongues last year for a while, so okay. um, sort of got the got hooked on them a little bit. I do think they're pretty cool. What was that? Was that the snake venom one? Yeah, was that, that was um, proving they're resistant to red belly blood. That's right. So yeah, cool. That was that was cool. a fun thing to actually prove and figure out, and I proved the monitor lizards weren't. Um, or it seems like they're not. Um, but yeah, that was that was interesting because I collected blood from like Parentes and Merton's water monitors from very nice tame ones. 
that some friends have, though. <laughs> not, not ones that were trying to kill me. Uh, and then I collected blood from a lot of blue tongues as well, but did it obviously in a very ethical way where we didn't have to actually sacrifice any animals for research. Yeah, oh, that's good. Which, which is good because, yeah, I probably wouldn't have done the research if I had to do that. Yeah. Um, so just small amounts of blood from multiple individuals. Yeah. But, yeah, it's funny, the blue tongues, um, they're not easy to get blood from. <laughs> yeah. Not easy at all. What's yeah. the sort of procedure that you have to do? Um, me and the Josh Linus from Unusual Pet Pets, he collaborated with me on the research. So I'd restrain the animals and he'd go in from the caudal vein along the tail. Yeah. And that, that vein like runs along the spine almost. But say you've got, um, I collected blood from shinglebacks and you'd have these perfect tails, you know, animals that look perfect and are oh, perfect, healthy and all that. And they've just got this weird thing where even if their tail's straight, the spine would be zigzag or bent to one side or it just wouldn't be straight. So the, the vein wouldn't be where it's meant to be. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then, um, like most reptiles, they can just retract their arteries, it seems, and just sort of retract blood flow. Uh, so you'd, you'd get it and you'd start getting a little bit of blood coming out into the needle and then they'd just stop bleeding because they decided to, I guess. Um, wow. Do you think that's got something to do with, like, if you're taking it from the tail, that they can drop their tails and possibly control the arteries in the tail or something? Probably, like yeah. Although they can do it with their limbs too. Like, that's how crops survive. You know, you see yeah, crops true. that are missing limbs. I mean, if anyone cuts your arm off in the river, you're going to bleed out, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, well, they can, you know, lose a limb in a swamp and, yeah, and they no just infections try, or anything like that. They just don't, yeah, don't bleed out, don't get infections, and they survive. So, yeah, there's a lot we don't know about just how in control of their own bodies reptiles are, I reckon. They are um, fascinating, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I love hit like reading, like when I do understand certain bits of, you know, papers and stuff, like learning that type of stuff. But I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes over my head, but I'll still give it a crack and read it. But yeah, yeah it's good. It's One good of the big things I would have loved to have done research on was the social side of skinks. Um, yeah, sociality in the Agania and stuff. I find that really fascinating. Well, a lot, a lot yeah. well, the Agania in particular, a lot of them live in big family groups, right? So Yeah. Just why? How? Like, how do they know their family? Yeah. Um, why do they stick around? Yeah. Geez, that'd be pretty hard to work on, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man! Become like a skin psychologist. Yeah. So. I think there's um, some people in Western Australia working on it uh, with some of those species. So. See what they come up with. Oh, that's wicked. It'd be pretty cool. So I, have to, I have to try to read that paper when it comes out. Mm. I'll try to read it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. Even some of my papers I read back over and I'm like, what am I saying again? <laughs> but, yeah, at least you understand it. Oh, I, a lot of it I'm just like, i got no idea what that even is. So I'm sitting here going, I have to Google that word. Oh, I have to Google that yeah. word. Yeah. <laughs> That's where the dictionary of herpetology comes in handy. 
It's a good book, that. Yeah, it is. For that reason. Mm. <laughs> For people like me. Oh, that's wicked. And you've definitely done a bit of work with the reptiles, that's for sure, mate. That's uh, yeah. pretty well-rounded there. Yeah, hopefully there's a bit more to come. <laughs> hopefully I'm not done yet. Um, it'll be interesting to see how things go, yeah, switching from research to zookeeping. So it will be an interesting lifestyle, lifestyle change. Yeah. yeah. Well, like you said, yeah, exactly. you know, hopefully a bit more stability and at least you know where you're going every day and, and what you're going to be Yeah, the, the routine. It's nice to be in a routine for once in my life. <laughs> um, never okay. really had that. Have, have you got any breeding plans this year for any of your animals at home? Yeah, the leaf tail, the northern leaf tail geckos. Definitely hoping to breed them for the first time. Um, hoping my pink tongues breed as well. I find them, I think they're just really, they're so easy to keep, which makes it enjoyable um, when you've got a species that you enjoy, but doesn't feel like a hassle. Yeah. Um, so keen to breed them, but that's but about that's, it, I reckon. The one thing I'd love to keep one day, I reckon, <clears throat> if I did that big boids, is some of them. Yeah. I'm, I'm really tempted to, um, even now I've got a fairly big tank for the pink tongs, tempted to put one of the leaf tails in there, see how they would go together. Yeah, right. But, but there's always that risk, you know, it's just like. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Just in case. Might wait till I breed the leaf tails and have a few more than I've only got a male and two females. Yeah. So don't really want to risk any of them on that sort of trial run yet. Yeah, maybe wait until you get, you know, at least double digits. Normal, you know, double numbers at least. <laughs> double digits. <laughs> hey, good season. That wouldn't take much. Nah. No, probably not, no. Um, what, do you get two, three clutches a season from leaf tails? You can get four, four or five, depending on the female, yeah. Two eggs, so it all depends on your female and how good she is. And I've had some females that only give me two clutches. I've had some that give me four. It just depends. But you'll find they give you the same amount of eggs every season. Okay. When you get to that point. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's better than Strafurus where they just keep giving you eggs. You take the male away, you still get eggs. Like Yeah. That was the the worst thing I found about Strafurus was – trying to stop them laying eggs. Yeah. And you just want to keep feeding them too because you're going, oh, you're skinny, you just yep. laid eggs, and then all of a sudden that, that cricket, so you just fed them. Oh, that's enough energy to produce more eggs. Yeah. yeah. So. I, um, yeah, I don't keep any more strophurus, but the elder eye, the jeweled ones, Ooh. I wouldn't mind grabbing some of them if they come up. Um, they are pretty neat yeah, little they things. Are beautiful. Again, semi-arid. I love a good semi-arid setup, you know. Doing them with some spin effects. That's just very, very appealing visually. Semi arid is. Speaking my language. <laughs> I just love rainforest stuff. Yeah. Oh. I do too. I'm I still, love I'm it. still working on the bioactives, you know. Yeah. Well, I enjoy the good, like, rainforest things. I just find that I don't know what it is about the arid stuff. I'm just fascinated with the land, I think, more than anything. Different mm. strokes for different blokes. That's it, mate. That's it. Nothing wrong with it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway. All right. All right well, yeah, that was awesome. 
That's good. Oh, I've learned something tonight. That's actually really that's good. I've learned <laughs> multiple things, I think. Yeah, same. I love talking about Venom because I don't understand like a whole lot about Venom, so it's always good hearing about it. Yeah. Uh, six years later and I'm not even sure I still understand it yet. <laughs> it's just, yeah, so so complex, the, the Venoms, and so much going on there. But it's, it's reptiles in general, though, too, you know, like there's so much that's got to be learnt still about stuff that we don't know about, which is like – but that's the problem with science is it doesn't get enough funding to study all that stuff, you know. Yeah. I think venom is one of those fields where it's lucky. Um, yeah. It sort of it meets the middle between reptile research and medical. I mean, if yeah. you, go to, you ever go to an ecology conference, there's like 10 guys there. Go to a medical yeah. conference, there's like 10,000. Yeah. Uh, it's got that pharmaceutical backing as well kind of thing, yeah. you know, like it can be money made off it. So they're willing to throw money at it. <clears throat> yeah. That's why, like, my blue tongue research, that wasn't part of my PhD. That was just like a side project that I managed to squeeze in there. Um, yeah. Get a bit of funding for and just sort of squeeze into my time. But, but it was what I was most interested in. I, I cared more yeah. about my blue tongue resistance work than I did half my other papers combined. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And as if you've got a passion for something, the extra work you can put in when you enjoy it. So Yeah. Hardest hardest part was yeah, locating people. You'd message someone and be like, Oh, do you mind if I stick a needle in your parenti and bleed it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be a pretty interesting conversation. Yeah. Oh, I mean, uh-huh. it's done right. Yeah, and you're doing it right, so no, yeah, of course, of course. Um, but, yeah, that was cool research. I'd love to follow that up. I did have a goal. I was going to try and collect blood from every single species of blue tongue um, in Australia. And then I, wow. I actually got to see some pygmy blue tongues. And I looked at oh, them. Oh, wow, that'd be pretty cool. I looked at them. I was like, oh, we can't bleed these. There's nothing in them. Um, <laughs> they're too small. <laughs> that'd be pretty cool to see, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah, very, like, you look at them and you're like, that's not a blue tongue. So, yeah. Cool little critters. They're definitely different, aren't they? Mm, that's for sure. Oh, we for can... sure. Oh, well, thanks for coming on, mate, and having a bit of yeah. a chat. That was good. Yeah, it's good to that. chat, guys. Um, did you want to throw out anywhere where anyone can follow you if you, you want to talk a bit more about Venom or something like that? Yeah, if anyone wants... Um, Instagram, Nick's Nature. I post random things, whatever I feel like on the day. So you might see something interesting. And, uh, yeah, feel free to have a chat. Um, and, yeah, if anyone's ever coming up to come see me at Billabong Sanctuary, have a chat up there as well in Townsville. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm always there. Oh, wicked. Good stuff. All right, mate. Well, yeah, thanks again for coming on. And, um, guys, we'd like to say a massive thank you to Eric and Owen and the rest of the MPR crew for having us. If you'd like to contact them, it's best to find them at moreliapythonradio.com and email them at info at moreliapythonradio.com. Make sure to follow the MPR network on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And as far as contacting us on our social media platforms, you can email us at australianherptoculture at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as well. Make sure to check out our Teespring store for podcast merch. The link is on the Facebook page. To see more of what Jason is doing, make sure to follow him on Facebook and Instagram at The Gecko Effect. And for myself, you can find me on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and Teespring under Beach of Scaly Beasts. 
We hope to have you back next week for another episode of the Australian Hope to Culture Podcast. Good night, everyone. Good night.